this morning, as you probably have already figured out, I'm not going to be preaching on any of the asking for a friend's topics. However, as Scott uh, introduced us to that sermon series last Sunday, it struck me that the text for this morning fits very nicely into those potential controversial topics that Pastor Scott will be taking us through in the coming weeks. Throughout these topics, we could very easily have the opportunity to, to put into action the instruction that Paul gives us this morning. And it's my prayer that through these, these 12 verses that we're going to look at in a second, we can see what really matters when disagreements come our way. Romans 14, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One's person faith allows them to eat anything, but another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than the other, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Father, we thank you for these truthful words that you have given us this morning. May you use these words to convict us and change us through your Holy Spirit. Father, help us to remember these words not only in the weeks ahead, but always. We pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear your powerful message this morning. Amen. There's been extensive research in the area of religion and church attendance within the United States in recent years. The Pew Research Center, some of you might know that institution, is one that has done a lot of this research. Their statistics show that in the year 1972, approximately 92% of Americans said they were Christian. And that number held up strong until the 1990s when things started to change. And since then, there has been a drastic drop in Americans who identify as Christians. Just right before the pandemic hit in the year 2019, about 4,500 churches had closed their doors just in that one year, and with only about 3,000 new churches opening. In the year 2020, only 64% of people identified as Christians. COVID-19 certainly didn't help these numbers either, so who knows what new data will show. Some project by the year 2070, the amount of American Christians will be less than 50% of the US population. And those numbers are very alarming. But perhaps what is more alarming is one of the main reasons given as to why people left the church. 
the executive director of LifeWay Research, where I got a lot of these statistics from, gave a very humbling answer as to why people are leaving. The director stated, and I quote, one of the top answers was church members seem to be judgmental or hypocritical. He goes on to say, and so the younger generation just doesn't feel like they're being accepted in a church environment or some of their choices aren't being accepted by those at church. It's as though Paul is writing to the modern church here that we just read in Romans. 2,000 years later, and the church is still struggling to get it right. A lot has changed in 2,000 years, but the fact that the church is made up of sinners is certainly not one of them. Before we continue on, I want to make a, a disclaimer about this text that we just read. There's quite a bit of uncertainty surrounding Romans 14. No one knows exactly what the situation was in Rome that Paul would have been writing about. Paul wrote to the Romans from Corinth, and we actually see a lot of similarities between Romans and the Corinthian letters. For example, Paul writes to the issue of clean and unclean food in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 10. And at the end of Romans 14, Paul mentions clean and unclean food again. This leads some to conclude that he could have included what he did in Romans 14 because it was fresh in his memory as he was writing in Corinth. Could have just been, you know, an FYI for future reference with no specific meaning or group in Romans in mind. Others, though, claim that Paul did have a specific purpose for writing. The people who Paul calls weak, these people claim, could have been uh, Jewish Christians who still wanted to obey the law of Moses. So if this were so, that would mean the strong group were the Gentile Christians who ate whatever they want. You know, scholars really can't say for certain what Paul's reason was for writing this section of Romans. So in other words, the only thing we know is what Paul includes here in chapters 14 through the first part of 15. But as one commentator put it, what Paul says is quite enough. I'm going to stick with what Paul says. I'm going to avoid making assumptions. Because if we avoid making assumptions in these 12 verses, then what we can discover is that Paul may not be writing about what distinguishes someone as weak or strong. He may not be writing about whether we should eat meat or not. And he may not be writing about what day is the best to worship on. Paul could very well be writing about the damaging impact a judgmental church can have on God's children if left unchecked. Paul could be writing about what the statistics I just shared prove. Paul could be writing about what a church shouldn't be. I believe that Paul is writing to us about what really matters. From the text here, we, we see what really matters in love, unity, and Christ. These three essentials, love, unity, and Christ, will be the focus of our time together. So the first one we'll look at is love. This call to love from Paul can be seen in the first four verses, verses one through four. And the first note to make regarding these beginning verses is the way Paul approaches his audience. This is something that really stuck out to me. Paul has a unique demeanor about this matter of, of eating meat, and a little bit further we see the issue of which day to worship on. He's not harshly condemning either side here. Sure, he's offering correction, but he does not show near the amount of force that he does elsewhere in his letters. For example, in Galatians 3, Paul starts off the chapter by saying, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He then goes on to strongly condemn the Galatians for falsely believing they can earn salvation by works. 
Later on in the book of Galatians, he would say very similar things about the issue of circumcision. And how different is Paul's approach here in Romans 14? This signals to us that the issue in question may not be very meaningful, or it does not relate to salvation, the issue that the people are quarreling about anyway. If it did have meaning, if it did relate to salvation, Paul would have addressed it without a doubt. So with that conclusion, we then can see what's really going on here. The weak and the strong both are choosing to let meaningless matters dictate how they treat each other. The matters they are bickering over do not include any theological or doctrinal issues regarding our eternal well-being. Instead, they argue about the little things in front of them, choosing to avoid discussing matters that matter. Now, I'm not suggesting that every word of every conversation that we have has to be about faith and eternal life. But I want you to think about the conversations and interactions you've had within, within these church walls even this morning. And ask yourself this. Would I rather argue over silly disputes than ask my neighbor, is everything going okay? How have you really been doing lately? You see, Paul tells us again from Galatians in chapter 6 that we are to carry each other's burdens, and in this way we fulfill the law of Christ, which is love. Rather than the strong despising or condemning the weak and viewing them as, as a nuisance, They are to carry the struggles of the weak so the weak can then become strong. Instead of the weak judging the free behavior of the strong, they are to present themselves vulnerable to the strong so they can be strengthened through love. We may not argue over meat and worship days today, but I I know there are plenty of issues that we feel strongly about now. You can have your discussions. You can even correct someone if they are demonstrating a false theology. But listen to this. May we never gamble the eternal state of our neighbor over something as silly as politics or whose pie is better. No matter what the issue is, if we are not loving, then we are wrong. Another tendency about ourselves that we see is that we too often let our pride get in the way of loving others. And once again, both the weak and the strong are guilty of this. The pride of the strong keeps them from sympathizing with the weak, The pride of the weak makes them think they're more righteous than the strong. Letting our pride keep us from loving is something we all struggle with. The reason that our pride gets in the way of loving others is because we have a hard time loving when we forget how sinful we are. Pride keeps us under the delusion that we are better than someone else. Pride makes us the center of the world, or it tries to anyway. Our pride causes us to forget who it was that saved us. In other words, our pride gets in the way of loving our neighbors when we forget how much love was poured onto us, how much love we require. We get so caught up in what others are doing that we forget what it is we are to be doing. Until we kill our pride and until we put it aside, it's going to be impossible for us to love the way we are commanded to. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We forget how sinful we are. We forget how much grace was gifted to us. 
we all forget who it was that has saved us. Rather than despising the weak and judging the strong, we should all strive to do as Paul commanded it a few chapters earlier in Romans 12, verse 10. He says, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. As if that wasn't hard enough, he would go on to say in Romans 14, verse 15, If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Love without pride is abstaining from eating meat if that would be a stumbling block to your neighbor. doesn't matter what you want or what you think. Love without pride is first taking the plank out of your own eye so that you may then be able to see the speck in someone else's. Love without pride is loving because he first loved us. We simply do not love like this. But we must. We are commanded to. We need to grow and become better stewards of the love of Christ. To do that, we must repent of our pride first. We must kill our pride first. Only then, only then can Christ continue his work in us through love. The second essential that Paul gives us that I mentioned is unity. And we see this call to unity in verses 5 through 9 as Paul continues offering guidance and correction to the audience in Rome. Again, we see evidence from Paul that the matters in question are not essential to salvation. In verse 5, Paul uses the phrase, should be fully convinced in your own mind. Another way to say this would be, your conscience allows you to do this. Being convinced in your own mind means that you have convictions towards something. Paul would not be allowing, even encouraging, convictions that led to behavior that was contrary to salvation in Christ alone. He would not do that. So these convictions are fully within the boundaries of Christianity. We need to remember that. Regardless, though, Paul indicates that these could become an issue within the church. Why? People would use these disagreements about personal convictions, convictions that are within the boundaries of Christianity, as fuel to attack each other. They would use it as fuel to destroy the unity in the church. I'm going to jump back to verse 1 for a second. Paul says the church is to accept those whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Paul commands that we are to accept those whose faith is weak. Here again we see some uncertainty. Uh, There's disagreement as to what defines weak faith among commentators. Some people believe Paul calls them weak because they have not yet fully understood the liberty they have as Christians, as followers of Christ. And this this would make sense considering the information we learn in the following verses. But it could also mean that they're just going through a rough patch. They are doubting their assurance. I don't want us to focus so much on why they are weak in faith and, again, miss the point that Paul is making. He's saying that whatever their reasons are for being weak in faith, it doesn't matter because we accept them anyway. And we don't do this to try and convince them that they are weak. We don't try to force our opinion onto them. We do this so that we can love them, and through the love of Christ, they may become strong. Here we see a very dark realization about the nature of humankind, about the nature of you and I. We as humans do not naturally receive those that are struggling to nurture and care for them. We have a much stronger desire to receive them in so we can pounce and attack them like a lion devouring prey. 
We would rather use these weak people, using Paul's language here, as tools to build ourselves up, and of course that means tearing them down. The minute we become the majority, we almost immediately lose sympathy for those in the minority. When we have the social acceptance within a large group of people, the people outside that group don't seem to matter as much. This can be detrimental to those who are marginalized. And this is exactly what Paul is commanding us not to do. We do not accept the weak in faith, those different than us, to belittle them, but to recognize them as equals and to love them as Christ does. A church that is working in unity makes it their goal to strengthen every single member. They make it their goal to accept those with different views and treat them as a gift to the church. And here lies an additional point that can be made in regards to what the church is supposed to function like in unity. As I already stated, Paul makes it clear that we all have different convictions, convictions that are within the boundaries of Christianity. We are all unique and are all necessary for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. This is a longer, longer chunk of scripture, but it's, it's really helpful. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8 says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us have one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Being the church would certainly be easier if we all thought alike and all had the same desires. But the church would not be better. Paul reminds us that we need each other with all our different gifts. The church doesn't need 150 of the same exact person. What the church needs is 150 different people with different ideas and different gifts, all working in unity, all working towards the mission of God to make disciples, all working to share the good news of Christ. In verses 7 through 9, we get to the heart of Paul's message within these 12 verses. Paul says, For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Perhaps nothing could unite us more than to be reminded of who we all serve. Whether we eat meat or not, we do it to honor our Lord. Whether we worship on Sunday or Saturday, we are doing it so that we can honor and worship our Lord. We were all bought with the same blood. And we forget that very easily. I need the righteous blood of Christ poured out to me just as much as you do. That in itself should unite us. Christ died so that you and I could come together, could join hand in hand in love, and show the darkness where the light can be found. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we must not let petty differences keep us from uniting and sharing the love of Christ with the world. Psalm 133 says, how good and pleasant it is 
when God's people live together in unity. There's an exclamation point there at the end, so you know it's important. May we never lose sight of that truth, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. The third and final essential that Paul gives us is Christ. Verses 10 through 12 make up this final essential. It's hard to call this the conclusion of Paul's teaching because he would go on to explain himself all the way into the middle of chapter 15, actually. Even so, it's within these three verses that he drives home the point he wants to make. In verse 10, he asks the rhetorical questions, and then he makes a very important statement. He writes, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. In verse 11, he quotes Isaiah prophesying the judgment. And in verse 12, Paul makes the simple statement that we will all give an account to God. All three verses focus on the judgment of God. However, instead of labeling these three verses strictly about judgment, I believe Paul is really making a call to Christ, that is, maybe more specifically, a call to be in Christ. And this call to be in Christ is crucial when we read the statement, for we will all stand before God's judgment seat, in verse 10. As Christians, we are tempted to read this and doubt if we will, in fact, be in good standing with God when the time comes. I know personally, this is a doubt that always creeps its way into my heart. And we all, myself especially, need to be reminded of Paul's words, again from Romans in chapter 3, verse 24. Paul writes this, And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And remember, this is the same Paul who wrote about the judgment here in chapter 14. So this leads us to the conclusion that the type of judgment that Paul talks about here, it's not the same judgment as Jesus talks about when he says the sheep will be separated from the goats. The type of judgment here is one with a lot less at stake concerning eternity, though it is still regarded as very serious. James Boyce, a famous theologian, one that Pastor Scott has quoted before, he gives really helpful commentary on this type of judgment. He says this, All these judgments except the first, the first being this one we are examining, are judicial judgments. They involve God's punishments of individuals or nations for those people's specific sins. The punishments involve spiritual or eternal death and hell suffering. The first of these judgments, the one we're looking at now, stands apart from the rest because it is a judgment of believers, which means that it is not for sin and does not involve spiritual death or suffering. Nevertheless, it is still a real judgment in which the followers of Christ are to give an accounting for what they have done in this life, and they are either rewarded or disapproved by God on that basis. If we declare that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, our salvation is sealed. Jesus' blood satisfies any and all sin that we commit. That's promised us by our Father, and that promise will see us through judgment. But we must still give an answer for the things we did, even though we are righteous in the eyes of God. And notice how I said an account of the things we did. God's not going to ask you what your neighbor did. He's not going to ask you who won the argument. He's going to ask us why we despise those who were different than us. God's going to ask us why we thought we could judge others. God is going to ask us why the love of Christ was not on display in the words we said and the things we did. Judgment is waiting for all of us. We will all have to give an account to God. These lives we live are not our own. 
the servants will have to answer to their master. For this reason, Paul says, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. It doesn't matter if we choose to eat meat or not. It doesn't matter if we worship on Saturday instead of Sunday. It it doesn't even matter if, if you are right in your arguments or not. What really matters is that we all remain in Christ because judgment is coming. What really matters is that we are people captivated by the gospel of Jesus. When we are people captivated by the gospel, we see a person who needs love, not someone who we need to argue with. We see a fellow brother and sister, not someone to devour. The gospel of Jesus reminds us whose blood it is that makes us all righteous, and it's not yours or mine. See, the gospel of Jesus changes everything about us. May we be people more consumed by this gospel, by what really matters, and less by what doesn't. May we be defined by the gospel of Jesus Christ that declares to us that Christ died for you and for me so that all might receive his glorious grace. That's what really matters. Father, you love us more than we can understand. You sent your son Jesus as a demonstration of that love. We know that we too must demonstrate that love to our neighbors always. We don't do this like we should, and we, and we need to re- be reminded of that. We fail to love, unite, and seek Christ like we should. But we also need to be reminded of your forgiveness for us because of Christ. We thank you this morning for your grace and mercy as you correct us and guide us. We are servants serving our master, and it is you who makes us stand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.